Well, we'll let's go ahead and we'll start with prayer and then we'll just jump right into our notes. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the grace we have in Christ. We thank you for the books of the Bible we're looking at. We're having looked at Haggai and now Malachi. I pray that you'll give us wisdom. Pray that we'll be able to understand the message of Malachi. Now, Lord, we pray for your blessing on our time. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we left off last week on page 29. We're looking at the book of Malachi. And uh, just for a little bit of review, if you go back to page 21, I have, what's what's that? I think you are, and I've, Okay, 22. So I'm one page behind you. Yeah, it must be a difference in title page. Well, anyway, on page 22, I have a chart. It's called the structure. And that gives you kind of a rough outline of Malachi. Notice on the left-hand column, You have Malachi 1, verses 2 through 5. The people make an assertion, or I mean, the prophet makes an assertion. The people then question that. And then there's an extended response. But that structure applies to the whole book. 1, 6 to 2, 9, which is where we're looking at tonight. We have the same thing again, assertion in 6a and 7a. The people's question in 6b, 7b, then a response. Then the other part we'll look at tonight, or at least begin looking at tonight, is unit 3, chapter 2, verse 10 to 16. There will be an assertion in verses 10 to 13. The people will have a question, 14a, and then there will be a response by the prophet. Anyway, you can see how that works out. So the book's pretty symmetrical. Um, Tonight, we're looking at page 28. We're looking at the second disputation. Now, remember, a disputation, that's something where the people have a position. And the prophet's going to dispute what they're saying. He's going to try to show the error and point them in the right way to go. So that's all we mean by disputation. It's, it's a correction of a wrong position. So we're looking at this, and this unit focuses on the priest. They're denounced for polluting the table of the Lord and corrupting the covenant of Levi. The thrust of this section is a rebuke of the priests for showing disrespect to God in their priestly obligations and a challenge to show genuine covenant loyalty to their God by following their covenant obligations. In essence, this polemical indictment reflects God's holy and prescribed demands for worship under the Mosaic Covenant. By the way, it's the Mosaic Covenant had a lot of ritual. People could be holy in the Old Testament in two senses. One, they were ritually holy. They followed all the cleansings and stuff like that. And then there's also a genuine spiritual holiness. Um, can I say most of Israel was not that way? That's, by the way, if it hadn't been for Israel's extended disobedience, we would not be here. Because of their failure, Gentiles were grafted in. And that's where we come in. Now, the great thing about Malachi, some of the sections like what we're looking at tonight, they relate to Israel. They they really don't have much of an application to us. However, what we saw in chapter 1, verses 2 to 5, about God's love for Jacob and hatred of Esau, that had a lot of ramifications for us. We will also see, when we get to 2.10, 
the issues with divorce and remarriage do relate to us. Marriage is a universal principle that started with before the fall. And um, God had a marriage covenant. They were supposed to follow it for aberrations, for serious violations of it. That did provide legitimate grounds for divorce. So we'll learn quite a bit about that because Malachi has a lot to say. And I think it's extremely relevant in our culture. You know, those we live in a no-fault divorce state. Well, you know, Malachi calls that an aversion divorce. It's divorce because of hatred, dislike. There's no grounds for it. It's just they no longer like each other. We call that here no fault. God's going to call it an aversion divorce, a hatred. Well, we'll get there, but that'll have more applicability to us. But let's look initially at this section. You can see the arrangement, the the two assertions, the objection, and then the response. There's two parts to that. Let's look at the... uh, Get this lined up right. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 6 and following. God states a principle through his prophet. A son honors his father and a slave his master. Now that's a truism. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect to me, says the Lord Almighty? And then notice, it is you, priest, who show contempt for my name. So if you notice there, he makes his statement about their, uh, or their, the assertion. If you notice here, this focuses on the altar. It is you, priests, who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Now notice, we get to the altar part in verse 7. By offering defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor, the Persian governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us with with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will will accept no offering from your hands. And then verse 11, he's going to come back with something positive. But let's look at the first part. Pretty much you can see my outline. Verse 6a, the Lord's assertion about the priest polluting his table. B, the priest's objection to the Lord's assertion about the priest polluting his table. Uh, then the restatement of the Lord's assertion about the priest polluting his table in 7a. Uh, notice here in this paragraph that I have, you placed the fouled food on my altar. The reference here to the fouled food. That, that's, show, that's violating cultic requirements set forth in the Torah. Moses gave instructions about what was considered being defective in Leviticus 22, 17 to 30. In verse 2 and 32, they were warned that such sacrifices profane God's name. In this context, Moses indicates that a defiled animal was one that was blind diseased or maimed. Well, that's what the priests were offering. That 
That's why they held God in contempt. They knew what the requirements were. But they were going to get by. Now, remember, the priest, they get some of the offering for their own feast. That's how they lived. So they're, you know, they're, they're willing to accept anything for their stomach. I mean, that's just the bottom line. So they're about like what we are, except this is in a cultic or ritual setting. And God's opposed to them violating that. Notice, D, he restates his point. Um, then on page 31, we have the first part of the, the response, the Lord's response to the priest polluting his table. Now, we read that. And we saw what the defective animals were. Verse 7 to verse 8. Then B, the Lord's evaluation of the priest's defective animals. In verse 8C to 10, it's a real indictment when he says, try offering these sacrifices to the Persian governor. He would not accept it. In fact, that could be disastrous for you. Well, then in verse 10, the Lord confirms his displeasure. But let's look for a moment at verse 11. The Lord's pleasure with pure offerings. Here's what God wants. So this is the highlight of verses 9 to 14. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Now notice, this passage doesn't fit with Malachi's day. This was not going on. Most would take this as a future messianic reference. Uh, we would say in the kingdom age, the millennium. And here, notice offerings are come not only from the Jews, but also from peoples all over the world. Notice he said, my name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. That's all over. And every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this has not been fulfilled. We did not see it in the Old Testament. We don't even see it with Christ's first coming. In fact, remember, Jesus was despised by men. So he was not the desired of the nations. He will be, but he wasn't at that point. So this is looking to a time when God will be extolled with pure offerings. Well, I could say much more, and I do go into more description of that in my notes. Uh, you can read that. I've, I know what I'm going to say, so I often don't read my notes. So you can read them for more details. But notice in verses 12 to 13a, notice the restatement of the Lord's pointed accusation against the priests for defective sacrifices. Verse 12, but you profane it. That is the Lord's table. By saying, the Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. How? When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices. Should I accept them from your hand, says the Lord? Well, notice verse 14. God's really pretty pointed here. He's got a curse. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flocks and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I'm a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. This sort of thing reminds me of Ananias and Sapphira. They said they were going to give so much they held it back. And uh, they experienced the wrath of God. Well, 
the priest will hear, although it's not as prominent as Ananias and Sapphira. By the way, that would shake up a church. <laughs> Two people get struck dead because they promise something, and then they give something that's inferior. Well, the best thing to do is not make promises. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Some churches use faith, promise, giving. I don't know, do you all do that? I wouldn't think so. I don't know that all of you abuse it, but I have been in churches that do that. I uh, made a commitment, but I had already considered what the cost was. I would not promise to give something if I had not th- thought it through. That's not because I thought God would strike me dead, but it's an issue of my word. And God knows my heart. And at least at that point, that's something that's pretty objective. But, uh, you know, we, we have not seen an Ananias and a Sapphira yet. <laughs> Thank the Lord, because <laughs> there's other things I could get zapped for. <laughs> I wish I could say I'm perfect. But I brought my wife here tonight, and she'll tell you I'm not. In fact, she would probably say, he's pretty devout himself. <laughs> no, she wouldn't say that. Um, we do thank God for grace, though. So, uh, over the years, I've mellowed out quite a bit from when we first got married. Do you agree with that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to believe when we first got married. You know, I was, I'm kind of like my sons. I was really into being macho. And since I only weighed 135, I used to challenge guys to do one-arm chin-ups. And I don't think I ever got beat. I had drywall and stuff like that. And so there were places to challenge those uh, finishers. So we hung it. They finished it. And I reveled in that. Well, time's changed. <laughs> I could not do that now. <laughs> the question is, can I do 15 push-ups? Probably not. <laughs> You know, I can understand where my sons, they they both have a little bit of macho-ness in them. I, I think that came honestly from me. But maybe my wife. No, it's her dad. So, but in any event, I recognized in time, these things pass away. And it's often more about ego than anything. Except in my son Bob's case, I do pray that he's real macho because in his job, he could get killed. So, you know, I like to think that he, I mean, he works out pretty rigorously because on a gang squad, he's been in all kinds of fights. Uh, He said, Dad, there's six different ways I can kill somebody instantaneously. You show me how to rip an Adam's apple out. Uh, And he says, you just got to dig real hard and just rip. (laughs) So, in any event, I see where it came from, though. <laughs> well, yeah. so I'm not denying. I think there's a place to be tough. Uh, I don't think as a seminary professor, I need that. <laughs> I mean, our goals. What's that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, we had some pretty tough guys come to seminary. Uh, I remember this one boy. He put the fear of God in everybody's heart. <laughs> Fortunately, he dropped out of seminary. I wondered about his sanctification. <laughs> it's kind of funny when you're teaching Hebrew and we take a break and he's telling everybody how he contemplated suicide. Nobody knew what to say. But this guy... <laughs> uh, he said years ago. But he was a serviceman and he was real big. Uh, in fact, he was very intimidating. But... You know, I figured, well, I'm not going to mess with him. So I don't see why he had to be that way. But, you know, for some, they need to be that. And I was talking to uh, Jason Daubert in the day. I don't know if you all know Jason. Uh, Katie is Kim Brown's sister. They go to the Bethesda Baptist Church. I mean, uh, not her sister, but her niece. Yeah, her niece. 
but he's on the Allen Park Police Force. And he was showing me, I saw him today, and he says, go ahead, fill those muscles. <laughs> and I did, I said, well, you must be working out. And he said, absolutely. <laughs> so anyway, for cops, I think that's a good thing. Well, getting back to my notes. Notice here, there's an indictment here against the priest. It, it's, he develops this further. He first of all admonishes the priest to listen. Notice verse 1. And now you priest, this warning is for you. Well, what is that? Well, verses 2 to 3 on page 30, I guess it would be 32 of your notes. Oh, you're 33? Are you guys 33? This is 2 to consequences. Well, then how was I off? Okay, 34. Okay, 34. Yes. I need to mark that just so. <laughs> so I'm one up on you. I guess that's it. Well, I guess I'm, I'm one behind you. You're one up on me. So anyway, I'll get this connected eventually. Well, notice he says here, this should get their attention. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honor me. Well, the curse here is pretty bad. Uh, Look at verse 3. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. Now, in my notes, I use the expression awful because that was taken from the NIV 1984. Here, this NIV, it's better to just have it as dung because you can't confuse it. This is, a, I mean, this is bad news whether you're in Israel or you're right here with us tonight. That's what they're going to get smeared on their face. Um, and you'll be carried off with it. Well, that's pretty serious. And notice in verses 4 to 7... Notice the basis for the Lord's judgment. It's the covenant with Levite. And you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. Now, let's pause there for a minute. Notice this covenant with Levi. This is a key thing here. Uh, with the basis. That is the basis for it. What's interesting is that in the Pentateuch, we do not have one text that mentions a covenant with Levi. Not one. Uh, This must be something that was well known. Nehemiah, in the same day, refers to that covenant. Notice what he says here, Nehemiah 13.29. Remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So it's something that's well known. Notice furthermore in Jeremiah 33, 21, we have another reference to it. In this passage, it says... Then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken, and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on the throne. So he's talking about the Davidic covenant and also the covenant with Levi. So notice, Jeremiah goes back 
a couple hundred years. So this is something that's well known. Well, what is it then? Well, I think it's best to understand that if we, this is a synthesis of other texts that relate to the Levites. And so a synthesis is when you get bits and pieces and you put it all together. And it's expressed later on in biblical revelation as the covenant with Levi. Uh, you have that in Jeremiah thirty-three twenty-one, and you also have it here in Nehemiah. So I understand it. It's part of what we call the Mosaic Covenant. And by the way, the Mosaic Covenant is really a portion of the Pentateuch. In fact, the Jews would call the whole Pentateuch the Mosaic Covenant in certain contexts. But specifically, the Mosaic Covenant is referring to portions of Exodus, and the larger one is in Deuteronomy. So in that covenant, if you put the texts together that relate to the priest, that would be the covenant with Levi. So it's a synthesis. Uh, But notice verse 5. He goes on. My covenant was with him a covenant, notice, of life and peace. And I gave them to him. This called for reverence as he revered me and stood in all of my name. Let's pause there with this verse 5. Notice if we look at the two sides of, by the way, this is called a suzerain vassal. The suzerain is the king, the vassals under the king. In the ancient East, there's a lot of covenants. They're called suzerain, that is king vassal covenants. It's between a king and his subjects. Well, with this suzerain vassal covenant, this is part of what, I mean, the covenant with Levi is a suzerain vassal covenant. God as a suzerain promised the Levites life and peace. Now, if you notice, I point out that the word life means more than physical life. Apparently, is a reference to the perpetual priesthood. It's life, the priesthood goes on. That's mentioned in Numbers 25, 13. The word peace, shalom, refers to the protection and care from God that God would provide for the Levites. As Douglas Stewart says, the priesthood was established and protected provided with perpetual sustenance via the tithes of all the people, given special cities within the various tribal territories, and guaranteed a portion of every sacrifice, save for the whole burnt offerings, of which no human ate. This is what peace means in the present context. So the Levites, they got a portion of the tithe. They get this some of the meat from the sacrifices. They had specially assigned cities. All these were privileges. And so here, that that was part of the peace. That was God providing for them. Well, that's what the covenant was. But notice there were obligations. Did you notice in the text now, I mentioned fear. That was also from the old NIV. In your text, I think it's better as reverence. Um, here it says, I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me. Now, the reason why I say revered is better. Sometimes fear can be misunderstood. In some texts, fear is an emotional dread. In this context, putting pointing back to the Levites, it was not fear. Sometimes fear is used in a more positive sense. It's really talking about a relationship with God. In fact, though they use revere, I still like the word fear because it does make it a little bit more solemn. But I think we get that with revere. It's showing that they had a positive relationship with God. That's why revere is better. Also, you notice here, they revered him and they stood in all of my name. That is, they had this heartfelt honor, a submissive honor. 
for the name of God. See, the name of God, it refers to God. Uh, in fact, the pastor of our church, Dave Dorn, he wrote a book uh, called For the Sake of His Name. It's a book that, uh, you know, many people outside our immediate circles use. Mark Dever uses it. So, and, you know, he's Mr. Big Baptist. <laughs> uh, so, it is quite a good book, but it's extolling what the name of God is about. That is a way of saying he is all in all. So, what they were saying, God is all and in all. May his name be praised. Well, that's the way it got started. But notice in this text, it's a long way from that. When God is threatening to put dung on your face, may I say they've gone backwards? (laughs) They've gone to the depths. Um, When we were in Israel, there was a place, Gehenna, now it becomes used uh, for eternity in hell. But uh, it's a big dump. In fact, there's houses built in some of it. And you can see it along the hills. But it's just a big garbage heap. You know, it smells and everything else. Uh, it's a terrible thing. Uh, anyway. That was a place where the real low, the low are put. The priests were not at that level, but they were going to be put there because of the disobedience. Well, I could go on there with that more, but let's look at the last part, verses uh, verses 8 to 9. The Lord's concluding judgment for disloyalty to the covenant of Levi. In fact, I skipped verses 6 and 7, so let me back up there because that is important. True instruction was in his mouth, Levi's mouth. And nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. I can see a little bit of an analogy with the modern day pastor. They walk with God in peace, uprightness. I mean, for the genuine pastors. And they turned many from sin. Well, we're not, the pastor's not priests, but there's overlap here in their function. Uh, you know, you want men of good repute. I think Pastor Kent's a great man of great repute. He's an honorable man. I think the pastor of Inner City Baptist Church, Pastor Dorn, he's a man of, uh, high ethical moorings, I can honestly say that I have complete respect for my pastor. I have complete respect for Pastor Ken. And I know Pastor Ken a lot better than our pastor. I see Ken and I have been eating lunch together probably for over 15 years, once a week. He, Dr. Combs, and I will be going out tomorrow, almost every Thursday. I know his heartbeat. I knew him when he was working at Huron Baptist Church. I knew when he was thinking about planning a church. I mean, he was studying everything. So he was able to put that in effect. And it has resulted in a vibrant church. And we do rejoice in that. So... Anyway, there's a lot of common denominators between inner city and community Baptist. And I thank God for churches that do reflect godliness and for pastors who turn many from sin. That is part of their function. Well, let's then move on to verses 8 to 9. Notice the concluding judgment for disloyalty to the covenant of Levi. Verses 8 and 9. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. 
You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. So that's why they're going to get the dung on their face. This is showing the ultimate in disrespect. Well, by the way, if you all have a question, just ask. Uh, so sometimes I, I prefer not wearing my reading glasses. I see things. The top's good, but it's a little kinky. Uh, I need it for reading. But uh, I'm stuck. I can read this okay. In fact, I probably could have made it by. It's a little blurry tonight. I should have used my eye drops, but say la vie. That's what John Calvin said before they burned Servetus at the state. Say la vie, that's life. <laughs> Guess what? Better hearts, hot steak than a cold chop. <laughs> well, we better move on to the third disputation. Judah's unfaithfulness to violation of the Lord's expectations in marriage. We've looked in one six to nine and focused on the priest. However, in two ten to sixteen, Malachi returns to focusing on the focusing on the Yehudites, or the people of Judah, as he did in one two through five. In this passage, the Lord announces that he does not accept Judah's worship because they have violated their marital covenant obligations. They're marrying foreign women and divorcing their Jewish wives demonstrate the breach of the covenant. Let's look at the first part. The Lord charges Judah with violating his covenant by marrying idolaters. Verses 10 to 12. Notice Malachi sets forth the accusation of the Lord's judgment in verses 10 to 11, followed by the consequential pronouncement of judgment. Notice verses 10 and 11. We see this accusation about Judah's covenant violations by marrying idolatrous wives, verses 10 to 11. Notice the premise of the accusation is found in verse 10. Notice he's going to set forth three questions here. Look at verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Now, by the way, he's referring to the formation of the nation. So he's, at this point, he's not going back to the original creation. Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? So notice the first question, do we not have one father? You know, that's, that's the Lord. Did not one God create us? And he's talking about the formation of the covenant. Then thirdly, why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors? By being unfaithful to one another. Now the third question we want to focus on. Having responded affirmatively to the first two questions, and the priest would have readily agreed with them. Malachi is now able to make his point with his final question. The point of the question is that many Israelites were violating their covenant obligations with their covenant relatives. This context strongly suggests a necessary part of a covenant relationship is solidarity within the covenant nation. Now let me just briefly explain that for a minute. The Israelites, they're a covenant community. Their, their uh, constitution is the Mosaic Covenant. So they are uniquely set apart as a nation. One of the, one of the requirements with the Mosaic Covenant is that Israelites were supposed to marry Israelites. Now, there are a few exceptions. Uh, I think of Ruth, who did get converted and did become a Jew. So you'll see that sometimes. But the main staple was to marry within the covenant community. 
Now, you know, we don't have a real analogy today because not all the people in the covenant community were necessarily true Israelites. But the expectation was to marry another Jew. I guess we could say in our day, the analogy breaks down. We should marry Christians. However, that's a spiritual relationship. The covenant nation wasn't a spiritual formation. It's a theocratic. It's a government. It's a theocracy, God ruling. So we don't have a really good analogy. The closest we get does relate to Christians marrying Christians. And that is something we should uphold. Um, You know, I'm thankful all our children married Christians. Um, You know, they, uh, they met our expectations. Uh, I had a few others. You know, all my children, they had to, well, Joshua was too old. He was 25 when he got married. But I know Amy, there's another boy that liked her. I had him read R.C. Sproul's, what is it, Chosen for Life. And uh, it took him a long time to do it. I read it in a weekend when I was sick. I mean, it's pretty easy. And I remember telling Amy, I said, he's not the guy for you. <laughs> so at least when she met Mark, she probably had educated him. So he at least could say he was a Calvinist. I think he is. Now, as far as my son Bob now, he led his wife to Calvinism. In fact, he ministered to her. In fact, when they got married, Bob gave his father-in-law, John Piper's The Pleasures of God. And so his father-in-law read through that book, checked out all the verses, and he became a Calvinist. But so we had certain expectations. We had more than just being a Christian. I mean, that was, that was basic. And I think for my youngest son, he met the basics. But with the other two, I wanted some active evangelism or discipleship. <laughs> I'd probably betray my commitment to Calvinism when I say evangelism to discipleship. It's like I tell my seminary students, I'm not trying to get you guys to be five-point Calvinists. You've got to make up your own mind. So you just study and, you know, a lot of the guys, most of the guys walk out at least four-point Calvinist. So I'm just a little bit beyond that. But anyway, what can you do? But my goal is not to really make them that. They've got to study the text and come to their own conclusions. So uh, with our seminary now, since we have a creed, all they have to do is agree with the eight-point creed to graduate. So somebody could conceivably graduate who's not Calvinistic. Uh, But we're doing our best to do that, also that they be Baptistic and all those good things. So there's certain requirements. But uh, to me, Detroit Baptist Seminary has been known as a Calvinistic school ever since its inception. So we're not traitors to that. In fact, I've gone a little bit further. (laughs) But in any event, it's probably a Poor, poor thing to say, though. <laughs> well, I'm trying to come up with something that, re- that relates to a covenant nation. And I can't... Maybe it's like being an American citizen. We expect Americans to marry Americans, although that doesn't happen today. But that would be the closest thing, where there's a subpart that does relate to fellow believers, well, brothers and sisters in Christ, lining up in marriage. So that's the best I can do. We're not a theocracy, so we can't understand it. Uh, We see a little bit of it today uh, with the Muslim world. They do believe in a theocracy. Uh, Not all theocracies are good. Their major problem is, is they got the wrong God of their theocracy. And that's abominable. But with Israel, God was the head, the theocratic head. 
And so the, it's rightly called a, a theocracy because they had the true God as the governor. Well, anyway, the sin here for which Israel is being accused is in the realm of the covenant nation. The actual sin is breaking faith with one's covenant relative. Or as the NIV 2011 has it, unfaithful. The terms from which unfaithful is rendered means to break faith, deal treacherously with, or depart treacherously. Often this is used about a prior commitment or covenant agreement. In this context, the point is acting unfaithfully towards someone in a covenant relationship. This term is used in reference to one breaking faith with a wife or a husband. This term is a key word in our immediate context as is illustrated by the fact that it is cited five times. Malachi uses unfaithful in 2.10 with a sense of violating covenant obligations to provide the basis for his charge in verses 11 to 13 of violating, of violating the covenant by marrying idolaters and by practicing a virgin divorce. With Israel's unfaithfulness in respect to their covenant obligations in marriage, they were undermining their obligations to the covenant community. Accordingly, this unfaithfulness is a serious and widespread breach of the covenant. Notice, too, a specification about Judah's covenant violation by marrying idolaters, idolatrous wives in verse 11. Notice verse 11. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. Now notice here, this intermarriage is a serious violation of covenant solidarity. Malachi provides the first two illustrations documenting Israel's covenant infractions in the realm of marriage. The point of verse 11 is that the people of Judah committed a widespread violation of the covenant by intermarriage with pagan women. Malachi's, I have a poor sentence here. Malachi said that it was committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. So rather than saying it should be committed. This shows the widespread nature of this problem. By the way, you can still make sense out of what I'm saying there. In Israel and Judah shows it's widespread. It is also clear from this from the text that religious intermarriage was a violation of the covenant. For it is described as unfaithful, in some cases a detestable thing, and as that which desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord. That is his place of worship. A problem with intermarriage is what it results in. Going after other gods. That was a serious problem in the nation of Jerusalem, of Israel, I should say. And by the way, may I say today, in our age, it's also a serious thing for Christians. I've seen many Christians marry unchristians, non-Christians, thinking that their spouse will become a Christian. Now, I thank God for the times this happened, and it has happened. God is a great God, saving beyond our expectations sometimes. But I can tell you some horrible situations where the unsaved person in the union is a serious detriment to the family, especially when they get children. They haven't seen a proper behavior because of the vision in the home. So it's a very serious thing. I know when I was a kid, I was raised Presbyterian. And I was raised 
in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. It's outside of um, Pittsburgh. The only way you know about Aliquippa is Mike Dick is from Aliquippa. So is Tony Dorsett. So they're the big names. But in any event, because we were Presbyterian, my parents drilled in me, you have to marry a Protestant. Now, the reason why they drilled that into me is because so many of my friends were Catholics. And so I can remember hearing that from an early age. Well, I did marry a Protestant. (laughs) But my expectations changed when I became a Christian. My dad became a Christian in his mid-30s. And he started preaching that stuff. But friends, I don't, you know, I can't tell you. I mean, we really have to do a better job with our loved ones. Because split marriages often end up with split children. And often, divorce may follow. So, in any event, I think it's one of the serious blights on the church today. I mean, it's a major issue in our country. Um, But I thank God for grace. Uh, I've known many people who've been divorced, remarried in the Lord, and are thriving. But they had some real hard knocks. And that's the difficulty. So, in any event, we need to, as Christians, we need to take that seriously and try to uh, influence those loved ones who share the faith. But notice here, point B, the curse on Judah's covenant violations by marrying idolatrous wives. Verse 12. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. God says, I don't want his offering. God's saying, I don't need his offering. I need covenant obedience. That's what he wants. And by the way, I shouldn't say God needs it. That's what he wants. God needs nothing. His his desires is for this. So that was a Freudian slip when I said God needs (laughs) <laughs> it's a big Freudian slip. But I was a Freudian psychology major. So I can freely blame it on Freud. <laughs> Christianity ruined that psychology training. <laughs> okay, well, y'all probably don't believe, I mean, you probably don't believe I was a Freudian psychology major. I really was. And my mother, she had great emotional problems. I went to college thinking I was going to solve it. Lo and behold, I got converted while I was in college. (laughs) And I found out the real help was with Christianity. But needless to say, I did go through that training that I'd say was wasted. Uh, Psychology is good for one thing. You can identify crazy behavior. That's the thing that's helpful for. But as far as as solving problems, it doesn't offer any hope. But it's good in understanding human behavior. So I guess it wasn't completely wasted. However, I, you know, my sons knew that they could, I'd never pay for their education if they majored in psychology. It's, it's, It's some sense wasted. Oh, absolutely. It's amazing. They can be totally off their wall, but they know their Bible front and back, and they're, it's amazing. You know, it's surprising, because for, when I was going to seminary in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I preached for about two years in, in jails. It's amazing how many guys claim to know Jesus. Somebody gave them 1 John 5.13. They prayed a prayer, and they thought they were home free, sinning like the devil. Well, that's not genuine salvation. But you know, I've seen preachers' sons in jail who knew a lot of the Bible. So that is, and, and I did a psychology practicum. Um, 
with uh, retarded children, and it was interesting what they reflected of their home life. And in some one case, somebody was a Christian, and they saw it. So anyway, human behavior is interesting. Well, in any event, I need to move past that. Uh, we're not exactly sure what cut him off from the tents of Jacob means. It could mean he should die, that his family should cease, or he could be excommunicated. In any cases, it's a bad thing. Well, let's move on to the next page. The Lord charges Judah with violating his covenant by practicing aversion divorce. Verses 13 to 16a. We see initially a in verse 13, a curse on disingenuous sorrow of those who violate their marriage covenant. By the way, this is very this is a very interesting verse. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Did you notice that? You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail. What's interesting here, in the ancient Near East, other religions, part of the ways you manipulated the gods is excesses and weeping and wailing. Remember uh, uh, remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Remember how they started inflicting themselves to get their gods to respond? Well, that's part of this emotional turmoil. So that was widely practiced in the ancient Near East. And it looks like some of those practices carried over in Israel. And by the way, those practices also carry over today. I do know people who really think by their excessive wailing, somehow they're influencing God to give them what they, what they want. But God will have none of it. I mean, I've taught at a Christian college. I mean, I've seen great extensives. And it does seem to me it's another form of manipulation. Uh, by the way, I don't think all people who do that are manipulators. But I do many who think they are somehow going to get what their prayer request answered, just like they want it. Well, what do we do? I think we have to humble ourselves before God. And I'm not opposed to people crying sometimes of repentance. It's the extremes. And that's the thing that concerns me. And I do see a lot of it today. Whenever I read this verse, I always think of that. I always remember teaching at Tennessee Temple. And some of those decisions, kids were going to be kicked out of school. And they all went to Highland Park Baptist Church. And you know what they did? They would go forward on an invitation to church. Because that could give them uh, an excuse or give the administration an excuse not to kick them out. I've seen that many times. Well, I call that manipulation. (laughs) Well, if we understand who God is, that can't be done. God doesn't need us. Nothing influences God but his own good pleasure. We're trying to pray. We humble ourselves. God does hear the prayer of the repentant. He may not always answer it the way they want, but as far as accepting their repentance, if it's genuine, he does. And that's all we need. Uh, Some cry, Others don't. Uh, I'm a little, I can cry sometimes, but not very much. It has to be something really bad. Oh, well, well, we'll pick up here next week because we need to move on here to this stuff about divorce. By the way, I'm curious. Do any of you have a, a translation where it says uh, God hates divorce? Which version do you have? The 1984. It had that. Right. Uh, But you know what's interesting? The NIV 2011, by the way, that's a bad translation. 
God is not in that part of verse, of that verse. Uh, I mean, I've, I've, I've taught this class. I mean, I teach it using Hebrew. And he's just not there. Well, I think on this verse it's not good. But I think the 2011 says the man who hates and divorces his wife. It's a virgin divorce. By the way, the New Living Translation has it that way. So does the ESV. So does the Holman Christian Standard Bible. So uh, we'll talk about more about that next week because there are things I do want to go through. I want to identify what is the marriage covenant uh, what were the expectations that God laid out and what were the things that violated it? So, got more to come. Okay, well, we'll see you all next week. Thanks for your patience.